could be the smartest person in the room, but if your heart's not in the right place and, and you're not kind, the contribution is not going to have the same quality. The Ethicist Corner, a new podcast brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. All right, welcome everybody to The Ethicist Corner, a podcast in which we discuss ethics in everyday life. My guest today is Dr. Mary Barlow, Kern County Superintendent of Schools. Dr. Barlow is also a CSUB alum and a founder of the Kern River Valley Collaborative, a network of county, private, and nonprofit agencies dedicated to delivering direct medical, dental, and social services to Kern River Valley children and their families. Dr. Barlow, uh, welcome to the Ethicist Corner. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Barlow, for, for those who don't know, could you tell us about your background? Where did you grow up and where did you go to, go to school and get your education? Sure. So um, I grew up um, mostly on the East Coast. I was born in Massachusetts on an Air Force Base, Hanover Air Force Base, uh, lived in Connecticut. And then my father uh, and, and family moved a lot. So I lived in uh, Kentucky and California and a little bit of time in Texas and then back in California and different parts of California. So I genuinely had a great experience in terms of um, learning different parts of our country, our beautiful country. Interesting. And, and so how did you get into education as a career? When did that interest start for you? Um, well, when I was a young, young girl, I was the oldest of four sisters, and so when we would play, one of the things that I would end up playing is teacher, and, and I enjoyed that. But really what happened for me is as we moved from city to city and, and place to place, um, I found that the one thing that was always constant is there would be a person, a teacher, at a school site, sometimes not the teacher, sometimes it was the you know, custodian or the bus driver who I connected with, who made me feel really um, cared for and special. And so um, I kind of got drawn to that and it was always in my background uh, as, as a safe place, school is a safe place to be. Good people were um, in education it is kind of my <clears throat> foundation, but I didn't end up going straight into education. Where did you, what career did you start at? So I started working uh, in business. I worked with AT&T and then Pacific Bell, and I was an account executive down in Southern California. Uh, enjoyed that very much. Uh, and then when we moved to the Kern River Valley, uh, and my husband was transferred to the uh, China Lake Naval Weapons Station, it became apparent that I could not continue in that line of work. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There just wasn't as much um, large industry as what I had been uh, working in in the past. And so uh, I kind of retooled, had twins. Um, and at that point we had three boys then at home and I decided to go back to school. And there, was, there were really two things that interested me uh, deeply. One was psychology and the other was geology both fit within you know the kind of Kern County uh, needs um, mm -hmm. for employment and uh, I enjoyed the psychology I worked closely with Dr. Carol Ropp um, and operated some of the um, human core program for a few years and then um, as the as I uh, ended up achieving the bachelor's degree, I realized I wanted to get back into the field and work with young children. Mm -hmm. I felt like that was a better route than becoming um, 
a therapist. And so uh, I ended up going into education. And, and so as a, as a classroom teacher, what, what was the age group that you were working with? So I started off with special education just as a substitute and enjoyed that, um, but found that I was drawn toward really middle school kids. Mm -hmm. My first opportunity was uh, as a first grade teacher out at South Fork Elementary School uh, in the Kern River Valley and then moved to a 3-4 combination. Uh, I loved that. And uh, then I ended up over at the Kernville Union School District uh, in the third grade classroom. And I did that for a couple of years. So um, in terms of actual classroom experience, it was about five years and it was primarily in the elementary grade levels. Okay, yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and so after that experience, of course, you know, you, you rise to the ranks and now you're the superintendent of Kern County Schools. and. Um, so this is a really important leadership role for education in our community more generally. Um, I guess the first question is, um, did you envision that for yourself when you were a classroom teacher? Or was that something that you know, came about gradually or organically for you? How did, that, uh, how did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. I did not ever imagine being in this seat. And I, I would say I'm kind of more of a reluctant <laughs> Front, front, front leader. I am um, kind of a person who likes to um, bring people together and problem solve. That's kind of my forte, if you will. And so um, when I had noticed in the Kern River Valley that there were a number of students who had needs that were not being met, we started doing a lot of work around um, you know, doing some deep analysis of the needs of the children of our community and the, and the parents and the families and how to better support them. And that's how the Kern River Valley Collaborative was, was born. And then from that, um, I did that for about five years, led that collaborative, and it grew very, very quickly. And I believe it, it's the leadership there is still uh, keeping it intact and meeting a need. But then I was recruited to be the superintendent of the school district up there, the Kernville Union School District. And I found that um, what was really important is bringing people together and making sure everyone's voice is heard. And um, that was something that I, it, it just seemed to come naturally to me. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really helpful in, in creating the, the opportunities that then were open to me. And so in almost every case I was asked to apply for or consider taking on a new post, whether it be as the superintendent at Kernville, later at the county office um, in the role of deputy uh, of the FICMAP Fiscal Crisis Management Assistance Team, and then gradually throughout the different roles at the county office until um, appointed as superintendent in 2017. That's interesting, yeah, so my, my training is in philosophy and. Plato in the Republic talks about the true leaders are the reluctant leaders, the <laughs> ones who don't want to lead. It's, it's good you're in the role you're in for, for many reasons. So obviously you're in this leadership role. We, this podcast is produced by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. We're, we're interested and committed to ethics in our community. What are some ways as a leader that you try and make an attention to ethics prominent in your organization? Um, what are some strategies or approaches you'd be used as a leader? So um, certainly it's always what is the most important um, issue of the day, which is mm -hmm. students. How will this impact students? That question is part of every uh, consideration 
uh, that we have. And I, I believe that the most important thing we do is ask others, how are you going to assist with ensuring that students are, are um, first and foremost in whatever it is that you're proposing. Mm. Uh, very important to include um, the voice of others. And so, and I've mentioned that, it's one of the first things that we do is ask what are, what are you as a, an individual going to do to ensure that when we are completing a strategic plan, we are in fact um, including all voices in that strategic plan so that everybody feels like you know they own it they own a piece of it so that's just one of the ways that yeah. that we do that that's interesting you know it's kind of i can relate to that because i think you know as a, a community focus institute we often think about trying to do programming that's reflective of the diverse community in which we live and we want people's voices to be heard and then to be reflected in the programming we're doing but i've also found that um it's not so simple as just saying, you know, sending out an email or, or doing a social media post that says, tell us what you want to do or let me hear your voice. You have to kind of cultivate like those types of connections. And are there ways or, or aspects that you use as a leader that you think are effective in making people feel comfortable to express their voice about things they want to see or, or in your organization or in the community or your teachers, however you want to interpret that? Yeah, so I think one of the things that has been helpful is um, setting the stage, kind of creating a container, if you will, that's safe and making sure that um, we record what people are saying, whether it be on paper visually so that they can observe that you're, you're listening or whether in conversation really, you know, keeping eye contact and, yeah. and you know, um, modeling that, you know, you really are engaged and you're doing some active listening. Uh, not trying to in any way diminish um, anyone's role or um, value. It, you know, we set a set of uh, norms in, and they're posted everywhere in our office. And those norms say things such as uh, assume positive intent. Mm -hmm. Assume that um, everyone's, assume positive intent, everyone's voice matters. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what your position is, what your title is. You know, it, you, your voice matters and what you have to say may be even more informative to a better decision than a person who sits in the top seat. And right. the reason for that is you're closer to the issue and you have more information about it. And, and your different perspective can assist us in then, you know, making the best decision. And so it's really going ahead and valuing um, everyone's voice equally. And I think if you say that, and if you express it, and, and you say it enough, and it's, in, it's around the office, and yeah. then you practice it, and you model it, and you show your other leaders that this is important, yeah. it becomes part of the culture. So um, when we have folks in our office who come on board, new leaders, one of the first things we have them do is go around and meet um, other leaders, and really interview them and find out what it is that makes our office special. And one of the things that we find um, often said is that if you're a person who's gonna come in and believe in hierarchy and that you know there's like more knowledge in one position than another or more wisdom in one position or another, you're probably not gonna do well here because we're all hands on deck and roll up your sleeves 
and treat everybody with respect and with dignity and with value. And so, you know, we're just honest about that right up front with, yeah. especially when we're recruiting, when we're recruiting leaders. The other thing that we do is we have in, um, empowered our, our staff and created a whole professional development leg of, of, of our office. And that focus is on helping people develop professionally and personally. I had the advantage of that when I was at Pacific Bell. Uh, they invested heavily in me. And since then, I've just really spent a lot of time on continued personal and professional growth. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important. And um, so we are um, asking everyone to spend at least 40 hours a year on personal and professional growth. Mm -hmm. We provide many, many opportunities. We've built out a division to support that. Um, and we, we believe that it's part of just the, the human experience and improving the um, culture of where we work. Yeah, that's a really fascinating answer. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, discussion of creating an ethical culture and, and also investing in the people that you're working with and helping them to continue to grow as not just employees, but as people, right? And yeah, that's really fascinating. So, so are there other exemplars or leaders that you encountered in your life who helped you develop these ideas or helped you kind of envision who you wanted to be as a leader? And if so, who were those people? You know, it was funny that when I read that and I thought about it, my father is, was very formative in who I became. Both my parents were my, and I've shared this with others. My father suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and he was in and out of um, hospitals, VA hospitals. But what was really important to me and, and what I learned later, and that might've been why I went into psychology, right. <laughs> is that he, um, he stayed with his family and he fought through the, um, the mental disorder for um, his entire life to keep his family together because he loved his family so much. And so he would take a shirt off of his back for anyone. He was always about kindness. He was about being humble, uh, hardworking, and recognizing and respecting everyone's voice. Um, mm -hmm. So I just really appreciated that about him. Mm -hmm. My mother was just one of these people um, who, she, she passed away at 46, I was 26. She kept the family together. And when there were difficult times, she would find ways to um, find the positive and give us hope. And I think that's really important. You know, when you think about like right now, what's happening, the most important thing is that you always have this positive, um, hopeful uh, outlook so that you're looking at the possibility and what could be rather than focusing on, um, you know, what's not working and, and, and what is giving you challenge. Right. I've been thinking about that too. And there's so much great work coming out of your office to try and support students and teachers during this time and our community more generally. How has this, you know, COVID-19 uh, crisis, how has that challenged you as a leader and, and kind of what are, I, I know this could be, there's probably many answers you could give, but, but what are some of the ways that you and your team have, have tried to respond proactively to, to this crisis? Sure. So um, the challenges actually, uh, I would say, is the immediacy of how we need to operate and respond. What we are fortunate to have had already is an established relationship with a lot of our 
47 school districts, our partners at institutes of higher education. And so what we've been able to do is reach out uh, through those established communication channels through something called the Current Education Pledge and just you know, lean heavily into the fact that we've already established that trust so we're able to move more quickly to mobilize forces to address those issues in the governor's executive order, but more importantly, our moral obligations as educators to um, the children of Kern County. So you might know there's 190,000 K through TK through 12th grade students. And importantly, in Kern County, we know that 30% of them live in poverty and 73% are um, what is considered socially economically disadvantaged. So immediately we determined that um, if this was going to be a long-term issue, we needed to move toward a, toward a digital platform and distance learning. We were able to leverage that, create task force across several different areas of operation that we felt would be critical to provide distance learning, to provide continued food service and security for families and safety, and then childcare. So those three areas were uh, the ones I would highlight today. There's many more, but in terms of the task force, leaders from across the county, particularly leaning on some of the heavy, the larger districts that have the larger number of staff and sometimes expertise, such as Kern High School District, Bakersfield City School District, um, Panama and Greenfield came together with KCSOS and we um, brought our, our talented people together and some of us got out of the way of those mm -hmm. talented people uh -huh, right. <laughs> and let them put their creativity to work. So our job was to bring them together and then reduce any barriers so that they could put their creativity to work. And what they did was absolutely phenomenal. In 72 hours, this group of talented educators created a whole new educational platform wow. for, for students across this county. And it wasn't just in English language arts and mathematics. It had English language development in there for our English language learners. It had universal access for students who perhaps, you know, have different abilities. And um, they've expanded now into social sciences and, and science. And it's really exciting. And then Anthony Davis, who's in charge, and that was Lisa, Dr. Lisa Gilbert under her uh, leadership and Dr. Rob Arias. And then Anthony Davis um, in our office, started working on get um, accessing right away as many Chromebooks as we could get yeah. and through every connection and as many MiFi hotspots and cradle spots to activate our buses around the county so that we could have mobile um, MiFi as well as um, activating our bus loops so when students arrive and, and pick up their lunch and their uh, breakfast for the next day they can also download their lessons. And you know, I think that type of action and that creativity and that around the clock commitment that they had to make this happen and the leaders is just, it's emblematic of who we are as educators and as Kern County. Our very best has come out as yeah. a result of this. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because it, it seems like <clears throat> you see that when in times of crisis like this, there's obviously the challenges that you face, but it also, provides these opportunities for ethical leaders and people to step up and serve their community. And you just see that happening again and again and again, including the ways you're talking about. I mean, one thing that strikes me in your response is just the scale of the organization that that takes. You're talking about 190,000 students, 
you have teachers, you have not just the intellectual needs of students, um, but the emotional needs, the, the nutritional needs. How do, you, how do you organize that scale of an effort? I mean, it takes so many different pieces to be working together. You're at the top of this organization. Uh, I know there's probably not a, a one minute answer to that, but you know, for those in other organizations that are trying to learn lessons from you, um, where do you start? We created task force and we created opportunities for leaders who were um, already in the organization to um, self-identify and then create their own um, teams. Mm -hmm. And so it really is about setting the vision, giving them an idea of what it is that we want to achieve. And, and let me tell you, most of the time they, they, are, they do even more than what you could dream of. Uh -huh. And then taking away the barriers. So uh, regular communication is also important in order to know what those barriers are. And then continuing to encourage and feed ideas and prop people up when they you know, become exhausted, quite mm -hmm. frankly. What's been really um, helpful is having that type of systemic organization already in place, but then activating it and empowering people to go out and make those calls and those decisions and backing them up when they, when they do so. We had to open up our reserves and we had to make some um, big choices about how to expend um, funding. We put $6.5 million into these Chromebooks to make sure every student that does not have a device has a device and has connectivity. We had to work with all of our school districts to ensure that every single uh, kitchen uh, could operate at maximum uh, to be able to deliver uh, 220,000 meals a day. And you know, if you think about that and the scale of that across 8,000 square miles, right? it's that constant communication and that, that in, in trust that we have developed in one another that we are able to, to scale it out. Kind of a final question I have here, and you've already, you've already answered this in part by laying out some of the ways that you've organized your team and these different teams, but are there any other kind of lessons that, you know, maybe that you have in mind now in this part of the process that maybe you, you, you didn't know maybe on day one that you think for other leaders, um, the, you know, here's a lesson that you might think about, like, you know, kind of applying to, to your organization and your team? Well, the one thing I would say is we've, it's, it's really underscored the importance of relationships and relationships are born over time. And in every action and every word, uh, if you are going in with the best intent and assume positive intent, that relationship will carry you farther and faster during times of crisis. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's the most important thing that we walk away from here is really ensuring that relationships are genuine and, and that you're, you're um, assuming about positive intent and being your very best and doing your very best at every, at every turn. And the other thing that I would say about this is as a leader, and, and, and I've known this for years because I've been in, in this type of position, for a while is that you're not going to be able to um, please everybody. You're not going to be able to, you will always have someone saying, why didn't you do it this way or questioning how and why you did things. And it's okay. 
you have to accept that because that actually makes you become more self-reflective and say, yes, why didn't I think of that? Right. Well, why didn't we think of that? Why right. wasn't, you know, when in, in all of our efforts, there, there's this other piece that we missed and how can we make sure we capture that next time? Right, that's a so great it's point. Really, it's really important to debrief. And um, after every uh, experience that we have, you know, we as a team, as a leadership team, are debriefing on a daily basis and hearing from others. What are we doing right? What are we, what are we, where are we missing? Um, what is it that we need to be thinking about uh, to improve? So. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really helpful. I mean, I think it's, you know, kind of, yeah, thinking about people raising questions for you, right? Not as a, as a threat, but a possible area to improve, you know, a, a strength, not a weakness. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Dr. Barlow, we have at this point a tradition in Ethicist Corner, we call it the lightning round. We have <laughs> five questions that just help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Uh, our, our first question is, uh, what was the last book you read and would you recommend it to others? Okay, this is strange, but I read The Stand, and it was a reread because I love Stephen King. Okay. And, and yes, I would re recommend it to others, but I might wait a year or two. <laughs> so do you have a favorite Stephen King novel? Um, you know, no, I, I just really enjoy Stephen King in yeah. general. And I read the Dark Tower series. That was pretty fun. So any, right. any of them. Yeah, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a fun writer. Mm -hmm. um, what is your favorite travel destination, near or far, and why? Italy. And I've been there three times. I want to live there at some point in my life. I love the rolling hills. They remind me of Kern County. You know, they're just golden. They're beautiful. The people are fun. Um, I'm, I'm one quarter Italian. I love the food. I love the art. I love the architecture, the history. I, I think I could live there. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. Wonderful place. If you could have dinner with anyone, past or present, who would it be and why? Be my mom. I feel like I've learned a lot and I would, and I would want to know more from her um, and what she would have, the advice she would have given me as an adult. What is your favorite thing about living in Bakersfield? I love the people. I absolutely adore this town. In fact, I, although I wasn't born here and I've lived in many, many different places, I've spent more time in Kern County than any other place in my life. And I feel like I'm a native. It's just the people are down to earth. They really have um, good hearts. And, uh, and I feel like it's, it's a genuine place where you'll, you'll find honesty. And uh, I just, I really appreciate that. And last but not least, if you had a magic wand and could make one change tomorrow in our community, what would that change be? Hmm. You know, because we're in the middle of this, I really would wish that every child would be connected to not only a device and connectivity so that they could um, pursue their education, but so that they could be connected to another caring adult in their life. It, that, that social emotional learning aspect is so important. And that connectivity, especially when you can see somebody on a camera, you know, in, in these times of social isolation is really, really important. And um, it, it's, it's the part of what makes us who we are. Uh, more important, our heart and and our kindness are more important than all the other aspects of our um, of our person. 
you know, you can be the smartest person in the room, but if your heart's not in the right place and, and you're not kind, the contribution is not going to have the same quality. So very well said, very well said. Um, Dr. Barlow, so I just want to thank you again. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. And also just want to say a thank you to you and your leadership team and your teachers and, and everybody for all the work you're doing for our community. We, we really appreciate it. They're amazing. Thank you so much. The Kegley Institute of Ethics is excited to announce that actor, singer, producer, and star of the Netflix original series, Dear White People, Ashley Blaine Featherson will deliver a special lecture called Transforming Your Trials into Triumphs via Zoom. The event will be held on Thursday, April 23rd at 6 p.m. The event is free and open to all. The Zoom link will be posted on the KIE website at cacb.edu slash KIE and through all the KIE social media channels before the event date. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.